Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 24. And we are taking the whole chapter, verses 1 through 18. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn there in your Bibles to Exodus 24. And if you don't have a Bible, you can pick one up right in front of you, probably a Black Pew Bible there. And we're going to be in page 64 or thereabouts in your Bibles. If you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Listen. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you and behold Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. I want you uh, to take a moment right now and think a little bit about corporate worship. Uh, This thing that our church does every Sunday morning for an hour and 15 minutes, the thing that we are in the middle of right now, corporate worship. Have you ever wondered what it's all about? Have you ever stopped to consider what fundamentally, 
what is corporate worship all about? How you answer that goes a long way towards establishing what you do and don't do on Sundays and how you do it. There are a number of ways in which churches today answer the question, what is worship all about? Some would say fundamentally, worship is entertainment. Now, no one will ever actually say those words. But that's essentially what they're, that's essentially the bottom line. That's what it boils down to. The goal is that people are entertained. And if that's the goal, then the most important thing is that what? You are never bored. Uh, the audience at this point becomes sovereign. They're the most important thing. So all of a sudden, the church and its elders, they need to really figure out what you want and to adjust to make sure that you come back. Uh, you want, I don't know, from this morning's worship, maybe more drums. Maybe you want better lights. Or maybe you like today. You were oh, more stoic. Or not stoic, but you know what I'm saying. But more corporate, I don't know. Uh, more, maybe less spectacle. Uh, maybe you think better food or better nursery. So the goal at the end of the day is that you come back. It's about box office receipts, numbers. You know, Steve just needs to get funnier and more entertaining. Now, don't get me wrong. None of that is, I mean, I don't think that we should just slap things together on Sunday and just call it Sunday worship. I believe that we should do things excellently unto the Lord. But entertainment is not fundamentally what corporate worship is all about. Now, some others might think that actually worship is about inspiration. This gets a, maybe a little bit closer uh, to a right understanding of worship. But the whole idea here is we don't, want you to, we, we don't want you just to have a great experience. We want you to be inspired. So services are designed to you know, leave you, I don't know, ready for Monday or something like that, you know, ready for the week ahead. You get an impression, you get a feeling. Again, not wrong. Here at Redeemer, we certainly want you to learn something new, to see more of yourself, to see more of God, to have feelings. But inspiration is not fundamentally what corporate worship is about. Of course, there's another approach on Sunday mornings, and that corporate worship is not about inspiration, it's about education. So we think of worship fundamentally as a teaching time. Uh, we can stroll in late maybe on a Sunday because all that other stuff is fluff, superfluous, to whatever the person appears teaching about. And all of a sudden, worship becomes just information acquisition isn't it? You know, what the person does up here is just a TED talk. It's a lecture. Sprinkle some singing in the beginning and the end. We, we just say, that's worship. I think that misses the mark as well. Let me propose to you that fundamentally, worship is a heart engagement with God on the terms that he proposes 
in the way that he alone makes possible. That's a mouthful, I know. But worship is a heart engagement with God on the terms that he proposes in the way that he alone makes possible. This is what happens when God's people gather together for corporate worship. And in fact, this is what we see in Exodus chapter 24. Worship on God's terms. Worship on the way that God makes possible that there might be a heart engagement with the Almighty. Exodus 24 is a really neglected chapter in Exodus. We, when we think of Exodus, what do we think of? We think of ten plagues or we think of ten commandments. But we almost never think about Exodus 24 and everything that follows. When we think of Exodus, we only think of those things. But at really, Exodus 24 is where everything in Exodus has been headed. This is the culmination of what Exodus is all about. Because God tells Pharaoh, let my people go. But why? That they might serve me, sacrifice and worship me and make my name known. Here in chapter 24 is a description, in fact, of the very first official gathering of a corporate worship service in your Bible. There's a lot of firsts coming out of Exodus 24. In fact, the next 15 chapters of Exodus is all about worshiping God. Here in Exodus 24, we see nearly all the basic elements, even, of a public service, including a call to worship from the Lord. You see here the biblical basis by which Christians think through a corporate worship service. We see all the elements that make worship possible. And so as we look at our passage this morning, I want us to see four essential elements to worship. Four essential elements to worship, four essentials to drawing near to God that we might have a heart engagement with him. Now, first, there is the mediator of the covenant. The mediator of the covenant. Now, the reason chapter 24 is significant in the Old Testament is that it recounts God ratifying his covenant. He's finalizing the covenant between him and Israel right here. It is the formalizing of the Mosaic covenant, and it will have reverberations all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Thomas Schreiner defines a covenant as a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to one another. Binding promises. It's a relationship of binding promises in which a ceremony happens as well. And we hear, we, we see the ceremony being played out for us. Now, we don't, we, our, our closest understanding of what a covenant ceremony is like is probably a wedding. Uh, if a man asks a woman, do you want to get married to me? Let's get married. And she says, yes, of course. Are they married now? No, not quite yet. Not really. There needs to be a ratifying, a finalizing of the marriage covenant, which includes a ceremony. And what goes into a wedding ceremony? Think of all those elements. There's a declaration of intent in the beginning, right? 
Will you take her in sickness and health all the days of your life? I will. And the two parties respond to one another. Then there's vows. I take you in the presence of all these witnesses to be, you know, whatever. And then afterwards, after the ceremony is over, what happens? Nobody? Even my daughter last night, she said, cocktail hour. I was like, that's right. (laughs) There's a meal afterwards, isn't there? And that's all happening here and actually in chapter 24. This is why it's such an important chapter for us. This covenant relationship between man and God is being made. But most importantly, we see right now in the very beginning the need for a mediator. You notice in verse 1 and 2 that as Israel is coming to worship God, they're to come near, but not too near. They stay at the foot of the mountain. Beyond that, only the representatives, Nadab, Abihu, Aaron, Moses, and the 70 elders, they can go up the mountain, but not to the very top. Only Moses goes and draws near to God. Moses alone. Why? Because he is the representative. He's the singular representative for Israel to meet with God. Later, we see this in verses 12 through 18 in chapter 24 as well. Moses is the one to go up into the midst of the cloud. Aaron and her are left behind until Moses returns. Moses alone goes into the midst, into that devouring fire for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, why this need for a mediator? It's because Israel is being taught right now, you do not just waltz into the presence of God. You remember back in chapter 20? When the people were fearful, they said, Moses, you speak to God on our behalf. And they were right to say that. Because they were fearful. Because of who God is. You see, no one just traipses into God's presence. No one skips in to God's presence. Because God is a consuming, or here we see in our passage, he is a devouring fire. You cannot stand before him without being consumed. Just like that. By his righteousness and his justice. No man, no woman, no boy or girl, full of love for the world, full of sin, brimming with indifference to God, alienated from God, can enter into his presence. Humanity is fundamentally, deeply at odds with God. In conflict with him, we desperately need a mediator, a go-between, somebody to, to stand before God on our behalf. And you need a mediator, and I need a mediator, mediator because you cannot draw near to God without one. Second, we see in our passage not only the mediator of a covenant, but the book of the covenant. We look at verse 7, it's explicitly mentioned that he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Now, what was contained in this book? Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So in the book, there's two things, all the words and all the rules. Now, maybe those are synonymous terms, but I tend to think that they are 
referring to two different things. Remember, the Ten Commandments in the Bible is not called the Ten Commandments. They are called the Ten Words. So the words here likely refer to the Ten Commandments, and the rules are likely referring to the statutes and case laws that we saw in chapters 21 and 23. Now, notice Israel hears everything twice. Moses comes, and he tells the people, and they respond. And then Moses writes everything down and then reads the book of the covenant to the people. Again, a first for us. We need to see how important this moment is in salvation history because here begins the canon of Scripture, the inscripturation, the writing down of God's holy word. It cannot be emphasized enough that at the very first gathering of corporate worship in the Bible, God's people are being guided by what? Written revelation. Not oral tradition. Not prophetic utterances. To be sure, there were many prophets in the Old Testament who gave an authoritative word from the Lord, but they will be hemmed in, guided, led by something written down. Words. Words. There is a fixed truth. There is an objective truth. There is a transcultural truth, a truth that will last beyond Israel and continue on to generations after them. It is the word that sets and continues to set the standard for everything else, and everything else must be measured against it. Now, I emphasize this because it's so easy to be fooled by spiritual-sounding talk. Oh, you Bible-believing Christians, you know, you're so locked into words on a page. Like, come on, stop boxing God in. Save some room for the Spirit. Excuse me? (laughs) That sounds spiritual, but it's nonsense. From the very beginning, Moses wrote things down, and there's not just a word, there's a book. And unlike the nations around them, what is Israel to be like? They are to be a people of the book. This is how it's always been with God's people. Nehemiah 8, right? They read from the book, the law of God, clearly giving the sense and the understanding. In the New Testament, in the Jewish synagogue, they, read, they open the book, they read it, Isaiah. And Jesus says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Same thing, 1 Timothy, you get further into the New Testament, it's the same thing. Devote yourself to the public teaching, to the public reading of God's word in 1 Timothy 4, and also to the preaching of God's word in 2 Timothy 4. But notice here in Exodus 24, it's not simply a reading of the book of the covenant. You notice there's a response. There's a double confirmation. He says, all, the, the people all together, they say all the words, all of these things that we have, hear, we have heard, we will do. We might kind of look at these Israelites and be like, uh, you know what? I kind of know your history. I know what's about to happen in chapter 32. Chapter 32, don't you just break it all? Like, I think it's kind of, it's too much. Like, come on. Like, you're a little proud to say that you're going to listen to it. No, I think this is a heartfelt response to God's word. They say, yeah, we're going to do it. Yes, and that's a good thing. And I think that is an essential truth that you cannot worship God without honoring and responding to his word. It is at the center of the relationship 
the center of worship. If you've ever gone to a worship service here at Redeemer, do you ever wonder why our services never kind of just begin with, you know, some songs and then sermon and, amen, you're dismissed. It never ends that way. Why? Because we want to, we select a song purposefully afterwards that might give you an opportunity to voice a response. Praise God in light of what you've heard and to express your desire to serve him and follow him and, and go out and love your neighbor as yourself. It's why we have silent times of reflection of prayer afterwards. You hear God's word and you respond. That is right at the heart of worship. Third, there is the blood of the covenant. Worship is made possible by the blood of the covenant. Look at verse 8. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You see in verses 4 through 8 that Moses performs a kind of a gruesome ritual where he sets up this altar. And uh, probably the one that was this that was commanded earlier in Exodus 20. And then he arranges these 12 pillars to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he has these young men, he sends for help and says, come so that we could do the burnt offering and the peace offering. Now these young men bring up oxen, costly animals, and bring them for the slaughter. They drain them, drain their blood, Half of it is thrown onto the altar. Half of it is kept. Thrown onto the altar as an offering to God. And Leviticus tells us what this burnt offering is all about. The whole sacrifice is burned up completely. Everything. The whole ox. Nothing. Because everything is dedicated to the Lord. Whereas the peace offering, on the other hand, is different. The best parts of the animal are offered up to God. And the remainder is left behind so that the people could have a meal. A fellowship feast with God. Now, what's all this blood and sacrifice all about? Most significantly, it tells Israel that there is no drawing near to God, no worshiping Him unless there's a sacrifice made on their behalf. The burnt offering says you have a God problem and you have a sin problem because God is, as we sung earlier, holy, holy, holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin. Just, his justice won't allow it. His righteousness won't permit it. And we are guilty in our sins. And what we deserve is to be like the ox on the altar. Slaughtered for our sins. These burnt offerings told Israel that to approach God, you need a substitute. You need a sacrifice in your place. Blood to satisfy the holy wrath of God. And so in verse 8, we see that that leftover blood is thrown, and some translations say sprinkled, on the people of Israel. It's unclear how this was done. Maybe Moses took a hyssop branch, dipped it, and just sprinkled it on maybe just the 70 elders, you know, as representatives of the people. Or maybe he, you know, he lined up, he went all the way back down the mountain and lined up everybody and said, all right, you guys are passing by, and I'm sprinkling you with the blood. Now, this kind of grosses us out, probably. And I'm sure it left a mark, an indelible mark on the people. 
and just to think about how it fell, the blood fell on their skin and into their hair and onto their clothes. You're not washing that out. Why the sprinkling? It's a vivid reminder that they were marked out, that they were made holy, holy in the sense that they were to be set apart from the nations, consecrated to God. Because the only other place in the Old Testament we see the blood sprinkled on people is initiation rites of the priests and Israel. And so what is God saying here? He is saying here, come into my presence and worship by the shedding of blood because you need substitute. You need atonement. And it is the same blood that sets you apart as a kingdom of priests. Now, what makes worship possible? What are the essentials for a heartfelt engagement with God, with God, a heart engagement with God? Number one, we said the mediator of the covenant. Two, the book of the covenant. And three, we said the blood of the covenant. And here's the fourth one, the meal of the covenant. Verse 11, they beheld God and ate and drank. Now, I'm assuming that they ate bread. Maybe they got some manna from God, unknown. Certainly the leftover meat of the peace offering which was meant to say, I am at peace with God now, and I can share a meal with him. Now, there's a lot of things we don't know about what this meal was like, all 74 of them. Uh, what did they drink? Uh, I don't know. Uh, how long did the meal last? I don't know. Was, was there awkward silences during the meal? What did they talk about during the meal? Uh, was there dessert? Was there food coma? I don't know. But what we do know is that at last, all 74 of the elders... All 70 of the elders and Nadab and Abihu and Aaron, they go up the mountain, eat and drink with God. Now, eating and drinking is a sign of fellowship. Now, eating and drinking, that's something that our church knows something about. But in the ancient world, you don't eat and drink with people that aren't your allies or aren't family. Eating was understood to convey acceptance uh, or approval with the one you're dining with. Even today, we understand this. A merger happens between two companies and afterwards there's a celebratory meal. Or healthy families, we, we eat together, right? That's what we do. Or, or after a wedding, we, uh, the union of two, we, there's a meal. We understand what food means. It's saying, we're friends. Let's eat. And as a sign and a seal that these 74 had with one another and also, to their near, and also their nearness to God. You see in verse 11 that, they did not, that God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Very likely this means he didn't kill them. You see, they, they, they couldn't come into his presence because if they did, you get too close, you die. But now they come and they don't die. How do you come into the presence of a holy God and not die? That's really what the first five books of the... Actually, that's really what the whole Bible is about. How can sinful people dwell in the presence of a holy God and not be struck down in righteous judgment? Why? Because of a mediator. Why? Because of a book. Why? Because of blood. And if you have that, then you can sit down and have a meal with God, fellowship with God. He will prepare a table before you. You can look upon God and live. Verse 9 says they saw God. And yet even seeing him, you, you kind of notice that they don't see much, do they? There's not really a description of God. 
Uh, it seems like they were only seeing the bottom of his feet. The language is grasping for words. It's, they were under his feet as it were. They're trying to find words that fit there. And that's what it's like when they were in the presence of God. Uh, I wonder if they came back down the mountain and people said, so what was it like? And they just said, pavement? That was their answer? That's all I got for you. Because I didn't get much further. Because I bowed my head down to worship. To worship God, Israel needed a mediator. A book of the covenant, a blood of the covenant. They needed have, they, that they might have this meal of the covenant. They had all of that and then they worshipped Only it was incomplete. It was imperfect. If you know the history of Israel, you know what happened. You know that this Mosaic covenant, this covenant that they were ratifying, was insufficient. Why? Because their mediator would die. And when they got new priests, they would die. They had a book, but they failed it over and over again. They had a book that they had no power to keep. They had blood, but they needed to sacrifice again and again and again, morning and night, every day, over and over and over again. They had a meal, but you notice... 74 went up, not all of Israel. No, this covenant was insufficient. What they needed was not the Mosaic covenant. They needed a new covenant. The Mosaic covenant was insufficient by design. It pointed forward to a new covenant, a a covenant founded upon Jesus Christ. Now, I don't have all the time to make you flip around in Hebrews 8, but list, or Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in general, but let me go ahead and read some of these to you. Just listen, because Jesus is the new and better Moses. Hebrews 8, 6 says that Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is a better one with better promises. Jesus himself establishes a better book. Hebrews talks about long ago and many times God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And with the new covenant, Jesus says, I will write the law upon their hearts. What about the blood? Jesus is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews 9.12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of bloods of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It is by his blood, Hebrews 10.22 reminds us, that allows us to, what, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed. Of course, Jesus left us with a new meal, the Lord's Supper, communion. 
Jesus said, this cup that is poured out for you is what? The new covenant in my blood. You see, there is a better mediator. There is a better book. There is a better blood. And there is a better meal. It is found in Christ. Jesus makes it possible that we might worship God in spirit and in truth. Jesus is the one who is the substitute once for all who satisfies the wrath of God. And Jesus makes it possible for us to have intimate fellowship with God, to boldly approach the throne of grace. And Jesus says, you can have a meal now and you will have a meal forever with the marriage supper of the Lamb in eternity. A better meal. This is the message, O oh Christian, that we have. That we have to tell people. There's a way. There's a way to God. And it's not with, with obeying laws. It's not with the Mosaic covenant. It is with a new covenant in Jesus that we must tell this great news. Access is made. You can come before the Lord. Do you worship? Do you have fellowship with the living God? I know there may be some of you this morning that find your religion to be cold and dry, maybe formal, maybe stiff. Uh, You read, you pray, you sing, and there's no joy in it. Maybe you go through the motions and you're pretty regular on Sundays. But you have little personal acquaintance with Christ. None of the comforts of grace that are taught in scriptures. And if, it, if that's you, perhaps it's because you're still under the Mosaic covenant. You're still living under the imperfections of the old covenant. You're looking for communion with God without having first the blood of the new covenant applied to you. You have the practice of Christianity, but not the power of Christianity. So do you long to know a personal, intimate, vibrant, real communion with God? Well, it is offered to you in Jesus Christ, but you will never have it until you bow before him, until you get yourself to the cross, until you trust in Jesus crucified. And that is the moment that you can sing those songs, there is a fountain filled with blood that covers my sins. God is always handing out invitations to his feast. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. So come and worship God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we are people of the book and that we have here before us such a significant chapter to recall, to meditate, and to respond to. We pray even now, as we move into a time of communion, that it would mean a time of communion, a communion with one another communion with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.